Hello, welcome to the West Side Podcast. This is where we'll post some of our audio from our sermons on Sunday, and we're so glad that you're here. West Side's vision is to reconcile people to God through the grace of Jesus step by step. We hope you enjoy, and thanks for tuning in. Yeah, we're starting a book of James today. It's going to be really cool. I think. I think it's going to be really cool. Um, I have sort of double duty to pull this morning because I, I want to introduce you to the book of James. We'll take a little bit of time. And then I want to get some stuff out of chapter one because this is the week that we're going to have chapter one. Uh, October has five weeks. James has five chapters. So we'll get a chapter in each week. Uh, we won't be able to be extensive. It won't be all, you know... Each speaker will probably try to draw out of James what, you know, is kind of speaking to them and all. Uh, so it won't be completely exhaustive because we just won't have enough time to do that. But, um, so I have a lot to cover today. So it might go just a smidge long, but don't worry. Um, I'm fully aware that the Eagles game started while we were doing worship. <laughs> and so the longer I go, the less game I get to listen to when I get home today. So, so I, have, I have pressure on me, so don't worry. Um, no, I'm, I'm kind of kidding. Let's pray and we'll get started, okay? Father God, thank you for today. This is uh, multiple times now. I've just thanked you for this day and, and the breath that we have and, and just the chance we get to uh, experience you and each other. We just thank you for that, Lord. Let your word do what it does through this vessel, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. I so appreciated last week Daniel's talk as he talked a little bit about, he told you guys that we were going to be getting into James, and he did something really, really good that I I want to reiterate as we start uh, and really make it sort of a bedrock foundation that we stand on together as we go through the book of James, okay? And it was this, if you remember, if you were here last week. He talked about the fact that James can be a pretty harsh book, and you're going to hear me talk about that several times this morning. James isn't a feel-good book, okay? Uh, And the issue is, I think he even mentioned that, like, um, uh, it was Luther that, Martin Luther didn't even think that it should be part of the canon in in the New Testament, because it seemed like it was in conflict with all of the grace talk that Paul would talk about all the time. So there was sort of almost, so it seemed like a conflict there. And one of the things that Dan, Daniel said last week was to remember that God loves you first. That God has loved you and does love you long before you ever committed even one good work. Okay? Long before anything you got right, anything. God loved you first. In fact, in 1 John 4, 19, it says that we love because he first loved us. Now, that's a big deal. It seems like a small little statement, but it's actually a big deal. If you remember when Jesus was asked what the greatest commandment was, he said to love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And then he said after that, he said, really, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of wording it the way I would word it. Jesus was really just saying, because look, If you pull off those first two things, the rest of the law, the rest of the good works, the rest of the things that you've been commanded, they're going to fall into place. They just naturally will. You're loving God. You're loving your neighbor. You know, it sort of takes out murdering, stealing, lying, all those things that you would do if you weren't loving your neighbor, right? 
But what is, he says to love God and then love your neighbor as yourself. So the idea is before we can even pull off a good work or something good, we, we need to know that we're loved first. We need to know that we're loved first. Now look, that matters. That matters because James is going to be tough. James steps on toes. Okay, you're going to need to wear your work boots that have the steel toe in them as we go through this. He just does. And here's the deal. This is why it matters that our foundation is right. Okay? Because if it's not, if you go into the study of James thinking to yourself, oh, this is going to give me a chance to get in better with God or earn God's love in a deeper way or a better way, all you're going to get is condemnation. Okay? Now, as mature Christians, the idea, hopefully we're convicted. I mean, I'm convicted even about what I know that I'm about to say to you guys. There's conviction there. Conviction's okay. Conviction is something God helps you to build to something better. Condemnation is like saying, eh, you're no good. And if we go into this wrong, if we go into James that way, you're going to go into it with condemnation. And look, this is something that's totally dear to my heart right now. You guys have heard me say it. If you've heard me preach, I'm very much, I have a heart for the communities, the people groups that have been hurt by church. I, I have to be honest with you, the LGBTQ community, uh, the, the, the deconstructing community right now that's, that's leaving church in droves right now, I have a heart for them. At first, I always thought they were being too sensitive. Because frankly, I, I grew up in a church that was pretty loving. I didn't really feel like the church I was ever raised in should have done any real damage to anybody. So I was always thought, like, they must just be, you know, like, they must be soft. Or I don't know. But I'm, I'm hearing more and more stories that makes me realize I, I got to listen to what these guys are saying. A lot of people are hurt by church. And I believe, I believe that, I can't really put a percentage on it, but my guess would be a huge percentage of it is because people are getting thumped by the Bible and they're feeling condemnation from it. And remember what I say, condemnation it's like putting a stamp on you, no good. You're no good. And that's not what we want to do as we approach James. Everybody clear? So I'm hoping that that's where, from now where we're going to go is on that foundation. So get your steel-toed boots on. This isn't a feel-good book. We have a problem because James is like a big sandwich. All right? <laughs> Every week, we're going to have too much to take in. That's what I was saying, that most of the speakers, all of us, are going to, we're going to kind of try to draw out of the chapter what we can, because most of the speakers are only going to be able to take a little bit out of it, including what we do today is going to be like that. Um, it's kind of funny. Gretchen and, I, <laughs> Gretchen and I went to a wedding last week, and so we weren't here. We were, we were in St. Helens. Uh, and this guy from Philly had to learn that St. Helens wasn't in Washington, where the mountain is, or where Mount St. Helens was. I'm thinking, like, we're going to Washington, we're going to be really far away. I was like, oh, we're not going that far away. But I sort of cheated on my typical uh, keto diet that I usually try to stay on to some degree all weekend last weekend. And the way I did it was I bought a big loaf of bread and peanut butter and jelly. Yes. <laughs> I'm a simple guy, all right? But I cheated all weekend making peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Now, the reason I tell you that is because the way I make a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, you, don't, you didn't ask for this. This isn't what you didn't come for this. But I feel like the peanut butter needs to be put on as thick as the bread is. 
and I put the jelly on as thick. So you have bread, peanut butter, equally thick, jelly, equally thick, bread, okay? I like hearty sandwiches like that, okay? And James is like that. Please don't think I'm weird about it. Maybe you already do. <laughs> but James is like that. So the reason I'm telling you that, it'd be really good to read ahead, okay? You guys should read ahead. You should read James several times before we're even done this month. Read ahead. Take some notes. It's really cool when you take some notes of some things that you feel like God gave you, and then you hear the speaker talk, and like he affirms that. I love that. It's always very cool. Anyway, so like I said, I have two jobs today. I have to introduce James, and I want to pull some things out of chapter one. All right, you guys ready? All right. No, you're not. <laughs> you have no idea. No. Um, here we go. Just as an intro, I like to know who's talking to me when I'm reading their book. Now, we know that James wrote this book. It's very, very gracious of him to say the very first word, James, <laughs> a bondservant of God. James is telling us it's me, James, writing. That means a little something because you can read other, like Hebrews, like we're not exactly sure who wrote Hebrews, you know? There's, there's thoughts out there, obviously. Um, Timothy, when you read First and Second Timothy, that's not written by Timothy. It's Paul writing to Timothy. So it's nice that James said, hey, it's me, guys, okay? Here's the problem, that we know of at least four Jameses from the New Testament, okay? We know of at least four. Some will say five or six, but typically scholars will take five and six and sort of say this is really the same guy as this guy or whatever. So for our intents and purposes, there's four. James, the son of Alphaeus, who was one of the disciples. James, the son of Zebedee, who was also one of the disciples and John's brother, one of the sons of thunder. I don't know if you ever heard of that term. There was James the lesser. Everybody go, oh. Yeah, James the lesser. We're not even going to talk about him except what I just said. No, he, the, he, they call him lesser probably because he was very young. A lot of people don't realize the disciples were like kids. They're practically, they were like, they were, you know, teenagers. Um, he was probably pretty young. And maybe he was even small because the, the word there could have meant small too. So he was a little guy. James, a little guy. Sorry, James, a little guy. It's all we're going to say about you today. And then James, the brother of Jesus. Now, traditionally, traditionally, most scholars, if you, if you did an extensive study and, and work on who is the writer of James, you're going to find that most scholars, I, I would even go so far as to say like 90%, agree that it's James, the brother of Jesus. But for argument's sake, just for fun, let's talk really quick about maybe what I would call the really the only really good argument for James, the son of Alphaeus, or James, the son of Zebedee, possibly being the writer of this. First of all, James, the son of Alphaeus, was Jesus' cousin. Not that that matters that much, but these, if you guys remember, when Jesus would take some disciples away from the other disciples to go do something, several times, they would take three of them. You guys remember who they were? Peter, James, and John, right? Peter, James, John. That middle James, the guy, that's where the argument exists. What James was that? Because we're going to find out in a minute that James, Jesus' brother, was really not even a believer until Jesus rose from the dead. So we're talking about Alphaeus or Zebedee's son, okay? And then, then it gets deeper about like, well, typically the way things worked in Hebrew tradition would have been that the older sons, the older guys would have gone with Jesus. The hard part about that is 
we don't really know where Al, James, son of Alphaeus, fits in all that. So it could have been, he could have been the James of Peter, James, and John. Or some writers talk about it being John, or uh, the brother of John, James, the son of Zebedee. Am I getting pretty confusing? I'm confusing myself. So uh, the idea is that this guy would have hung out with Jesus pretty a lot, right? Um, he was getting to have that kind of more closer inner time with Jesus. And so wouldn't it be natural for him to be somebody who was kind of part of beginning this ministry in the writer of James? Uh, I think those arguments are slightly weak because after, after we hear about them in the Bible, they're pretty obscure. We don't hear anything else about them. James, Jesus' brother, we hear a lot about, and I just think it makes the most sense logically to hold with the traditional thing. And, and as a leader of, he, basically, this James became the leader of the Christian church in Jerusalem. So it makes sense. He would have been the most well-known, and he also would have been naturally given authority. People would have just, anything he said would have been authoritative. So let's, let's, let's just assume for now it's James, Jesus' brother, because it's precious to me when you start to look at James through his eyes, okay? So let's talk a little bit about him real quick. First, like we already said, he wasn't a believer at first. Um, you can read about that in John 7, 4 through 5, um, and Mark 6, 3, 6. We talked about that a little bit. Um, his conversion is talked about in 1 Corinthians 15, 7. Very interesting. Think about this, okay? James, Jesus' brother, would have grown up with Jesus when they were kids, okay? Now, Jesus had three brothers. There's four altogether. Um, I don't ask me to remember, Jude and others. <laughs> so he had, he had other brothers, and he, the Bible says he had sisters, plural. doesn't say how many, and doesn't give us their names. But you've got some kids under the house, Okay. Uh, whose father, Joseph, was a blue-collar worker. So it's kind of hard to say if he had some serious money or not. Probably not. So you can picture these boys kind of all bunking together, you know, all in tight quarters in a, in a room, and the things that boys do. <laughs> I live with my, my grandsons right now, and, you know, it's just incredible. <laughs> It's just incredible. I do believe, I pray for my daughter so much. Uh, I, I see her, her tuning out. It's pretty sad. Anyway, um, it's funny. It's, it's awesome. But I can only imagine, just, just think about this, okay? Think about, we know that, that at one point at least, Jesus' brothers thought he was a little bit crazy. Uh, there was something that they just weren't picking up with Jesus like not digging his ministry. And I don't know what kind of things they might have said, but imagine now in 1 Corinthians 15.7 where it says he appeared to a bunch of people and then it says he appeared to James. And then it says, and then he appeared to the other disciples, separating James from them. That's how we, we, we believe it's Jesus' brother. Can you imagine that, guys? James looking at his brother and going, look about what I said, <laughs> right? Look, when I said this to you, <laughs> he's looking at the risen king. Just incredible, just incredible. 
and, and, and such, such an incredible defense of our faith, just the fact that a brother would pronounce his, his brother king and Lord and Messiah and God. Incredible. One of my favorite things that historians say, we can't get into everything, but one of my favorite things is that historians called him Old Camel Knees. We have a picture. Yeah, there you go. They said that, they said that James was so, his heart was so for Jerusalem and the Christian church in Jerusalem and, and the dispersion of the 12 tribes all over. We'll, we'll see that that's who he's writing to. That he prayed, some people say, eight to 10 hours a day. That he was on his knees that long. Some, some historians said that he was on his knees praying more than he was doing anything else in his waking hours. Can you imagine that? When that becomes hard to imagine, there's one precious thing I, can, I think of to myself. And it's that when he realized that who Jesus was, and this is his brother, all of you probably have somebody in your life you lost. And I bet you would have no hard time at all if it took being on your knees to see them again and talk with them. And James would do that. He would talk to his brother every day. Isn't that precious? I think that's amazing. Here's the main theme. Let's talk about the theme of James before we start getting into it. Remember what I said. Uh, this, is, this, is not, this is not like nice stuff, okay? It's not a feel-good book. Because the main theme is, the, is this is how mature Christians live. I mean, if there's, a, there's not a better way of putting what James is going to be telling us, in his words, it would be, this is how a mature Christian lives. In all the different chapters, we're going to see, you can do the next one. This is how a, a mature Christian handles and views trials and temptation. This is how a mature Christian stays single-minded and focused. It's how a mature Christian acts towards others. It's how a mature Christian controls what comes out of their mouth and, and controls their tongue. It's how a mature Christian makes peace, not trouble. And it's how a mature Christian prays. All of this is going to be addressed in James. But he's addressing what this is what a mature Christian looks like. Okay? Now, just when... Oh, so, so I mean, it really can be wrapped up in one statement, which we find in James 2.26, that faith without works is dead, right? You guys have all heard. That's a pretty famous thing. Faith without works is dead. And I don't want to steal too much thunder from, from next week's speaker, but this is really the heart of the theme of all of James. When James, if he was labeled a legalist, you know, somebody that was harping on this too much, I could see James saying something like this. Wouldn't it be fair to assume that if we are expecting our faith in his work on the cross to save us, wouldn't it be fair to say that he could expect that same faith would result in some good works from us? We sure expect it from him. In other words, if real faith equals God's work, real faith also equals our work. That makes sense? You see where we're going here? This is, that's not easy to hear. That, that convicts me. But that's what James is doing here. He's like, look. We want the real. Don't you want the real? I'm hope, I, mean, I'm, I feel like, why do we do this? Why do we come here if we don't want the real? I want the real. I want the real. And I think that's what James, James saw so much, so much 
in the fake and the sort of just like grabbing a little bit of religion where it works for you, but just kind of using it here, using it there to feel better for yourself and maybe do this, blah, 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 blah. Guys, the church has been doing that too long. And I refer back to what I talked about earlier about just people deconstructing it all, just sick of seeing it. I read an article, this is not in my notes. I read an article this week that the guy talked about he used to do, he used to be a really good drummer for a big Christian worship band, and he stopped doing it for lots of reasons I won't get into. But one of the things that broke his heart is they would do this big worship thing, thousands of people loving, worshiping God, doing all the things that we would say, oh, that's great. This, these people are giving their hearts to God and just worship and worship. Oh, Lord Jesus, all this stuff. And then what they would do is they'd walk out to their cars and either go home or go out to eat every time. And they'd walk right past people who needed some money or were hurting. And, and he was like, what, what is this? What is this that we're doing? If real faith activates and equals God's work, then real faith should, be, should do that with ours. So I wanna, here's what we want to do. It's only going to take about four minutes, five minutes. I want to read the book of James, uh, chapter 1. We're going to read the whole thing because, like I said, I can't, I can't preach all of it, okay? But it would be worth it to hear it all. Um, so I want to read it all. And remember again, <laughs> I, just, I have it, if you saw my notes, all in blue, these are my, like, remember. Remember, James is not a feel-good book. I don't, have a, I don't have feel-good things to say. I don't have a feel-good conclusion. And this won't be a feel-good month. <laughs> it's like I have that written here uh, as, as we start reading the book. Um, so you can follow along on the screen. And here we go. James chapter 1. James, a bondservant of God and to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes who are dispersed among, abroad. Greetings. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. But if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without proach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without any doubting, for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind." For let not that man expect that he will ever receive anything from the Lord, being double-minded, being a double-minded man, unstable in his ways. Let me just stop really quick there. That's not, that has been used as a proof text for name it and claim it stuff. I'm going to tell you that's not what that is. It's not saying if you ask in faith, you'll just get anything. It's saying if you ask for wisdom, God won't deny you that. Just throwing it out there. But let the brother of humble circumstances glory in his high position. And let the rich man glory in his humiliation, because like flowering grass, he will pass away. For the sun rises with the scorching wind and withers the grass, and its flower falls off, and the beauty of its, of its appearance is destroyed. So too the rich man, in the midst of his pursuits, will fade away. Blessed is a man who per perseveres under trial, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. And just real quick, that section... Just the context of that section, he's basically saying, blessed is somebody who has to go through trials and is tested. The, the inference here is like rich people have the ability to pay for things to stay away from certain trials. That's kind of what he's saying here. I'm, I'm going to give you these little things because I'm not going to get to preach on that. But that's, that's the general idea here. You're, blessed is the man. Uh, I, I, a Dallas theological um, seminary uh, 
professor put it this way, um, that, that sometimes when you read the word blessed, it's like congratulations to. Congratulations to the one who goes through trial. It's pretty interesting. 16, do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good thing bestowed and every, every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shifting shadow. In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, so that we might be, as it were, his first fruits among his creatures. That's a neat word right there. In the exercise of his will, he wanted you. Pretty cool. This you know, my beloved brethren, but let everyone be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Do not like that verse. I have stuff written in there because that's not me, just so you know. Okay? Uh, By the way, he uses my brethren 19 times all throughout James. There's something he, he really digs using that term. For, this is a tough one, for the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Can I just tell you that you're not going to find anywhere in Scripture that tells you to be offended at things? I can't find it. I haven't found it. I find the opposite. For the anger of man does not achieve the righteousness of God. Therefore, putting aside all filthiness and all that remains of wickedness and humility, receive the word implanted, which is able to save your souls. But prove yourselves doers of the word and not merely hearers. And delude themselves. Are you getting kind of James's take here? For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks in his natural face in the mirror. By the way, uh, that same professor talked about this, this word for man is almost 100% of the time actually meaning the gender of man, not just humankind, which is kind of funny when you consider that most men barely look in the mirror when, before they go and they take off, and they, so that's why they don't remember what they looked like. Women, you guys are way better at like getting yourself kind of together and knowing what's going on up there. It's kind of funny. <clears throat> anyway, that's, that's not mine. That was his. For once he has looked at himself and gone away, he's immediately forgotten what kind of person he was. But the one who looks intently at the perfect law, the law of liberty, and abides by it, not having become forgetful here, but an effectual doer. This man shall be blessed in all he does. If anyone thinks himself to be religious, and yet does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his own heart, this, man, this man's religion is worthless. This is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father. And this is where you, you lean in. What, what is? To visit orphans and widows in their distress, and to keep oneself unstained by the world. That's, that's James 1. All right. Like I said, we're only going to touch a little bit of this. And I thought I would, I had some really good things to glean from the trials part of this. I just think it's good for today and we needed to. So we're going to go back and just kind of go over the first four or five verses, um, looking at the words and all that kind of stuff. Um, Looking at how, remember, how a mature person handles trials, remembering that God loves us first, remembering this is not going to be a feel-good thing. And I say that because this is not the kind of thing that we tell somebody who just went through something hard. Right? This is, what I'm about to go through here is a, like a classroom-style James type of thing saying, this is how a mature Christian handles trials. Understanding that there's room for people to struggle, and we're going to see that pretty soon here. 
But just so you know, this is not like you don't read this as somebody who just lost somebody. Well, consider it all joy because, you know, like, mm, okay, this is good meat to have in your heart already when that happens, okay? So I'm just saying that because um, I know that I might be reading this and talking about this to people who have, have struggled lately with something. And, and, and I want you to know this is just good Christianity 101 stuff. It's not like to make you feel better, okay? But let's look at the words. He says, consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. That word consider, we're going to look at the word consider, we're going to look at the word knowing, and we're going to look at the word let. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, and let endurance have its perfect result, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. The, the, the Hebrew word there for perfect is mature. It'd probably be better to write mature in there or older. The idea is being a more complete person because you've gone through some things and you're older. Um, so when you think, oh, perfect, nobody's going to be perfect. That's not really the best word there. But let's go back. We're, we're talking about considering, knowing, and letting. Consider it all joy, my brethren. That word there, it's a hard word to say in Greek. I have it written there. Hey, uh, om ahi. Hey, uh, om ahi. I think I got it. Really just, it means to think about and ponder. Consider. Ponder. Now, what does that mean? When you ponder something, it means you have to have something to ponder. Right? That presupposes that there's something already that you know and are pondering. Okay? I just want to throw that out there. The other word that could be used there, and some of your translations may have said this, is count. Count it all joy. Sorry, this is going crazy. My brethren. Okay. Count it all joy when you encounter various trials. That word works too. Um, that's more like a, almost like a mathematical term. Like, check it off. Count it. This is what's happening. Like, it's that, that factual. Count it all joy when you're, when you're going through stuff. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. That word knowing, many of you, you know this one. This is the Greek word gnosko. It's, it's something about not just knowing about, but knowing someone. So for example, like I grew up, one of my heroes growing up, don't laugh, was Arnold Schwarzenegger. I, I wanted to be like big like he was. I was never going to be as tall as he was, but I wanted to be. And I tried really hard and even got, not close, but got to where I put some stuff on. Half of my problems physically are because of that. But anyway, um, so I knew a lot about Arnold. I knew a lot about him. I could, I could have told you how many championships he won and the Mr. Olympias he won. He's, you know, in case you don't know who he is, he's that bodybuilder that was one of the best ever. Still considered one of the best ever. Um, but I don't know Arnold, right? Like, I don't know how he would act in a certain situation. Or if somebody up and came up and kicked him in the shin. I don't know exactly what he's going to say or what he's going to do. That's like, that, that kind of stuff is the kind of stuff when you really know somebody, you know? I know my wife Gretchen. I know almost 100% of the time how she's going to react to something I say or you say or just something that happens during the day. I have a pretty good take on what she's even going to do next because I know her so well. You guys get it. That's what Gnosko is talking about. So as we consider, as we consider, what's the stuff that's supposed to be in our mind? The stuff that's supposed to be in our mind is what we know about our God. 
You following me? So we consider, we consider it all joy, not in the trial. James is not saying be glad about the trial. Don't be like, oh, cool, can I have another one of those? That's not what he's saying, okay? He's not saying that. He's saying, consider it all, the joy that we're considering is that we know, we're knowing that the testing, and by the way, the word for testing there, and, and, and any of you teachers in the room can appreciate this. This is a test to pass. This is a test to show that you are, you're, you're going somewhere, that you're doing well. I think, John, anybody else here as a teacher, if you gave a test to your students and everyone failed it, <laughs> and you're the kind, and if you were the teacher that went, oh, I got a lot of bunch of dumb kids here. No, what we would say is that teacher must have done something wrong. It's the teacher's fault, right? God's not interested in testing you just so like you fail. This is a test to, to, to pass, to show you you got something in you, to, to make, you, make you, you know, realize that you've got a faith that's on, on, on a strong rock, you know? That's kind of good to know. That's good to know. And then after you consider in the things that you know about God that the testing of, your, uh, testing of your faith produces endurance, then you can let endurance have its perfect result. Do you notice how it's a different word, let? It does not mean so that you can strive harder, strive harder or something like that to have its perfect result. No, letting has way more of a going, okay, now I can sit back and rest in what I know is going on here. So a trial comes, trial comes, we consider what we know about him. And like I already said, problem is, if you don't know him, this isn't for you. Your trials become kind of, in our modern way of thinking, something that's just always something to completely avoid. Our modern way of thinking is avoid trials at all costs. And if you happen to hit them, if you happen to have trials and you kind of can't understand them or whatever, well, sorry if to be harsh, but that's, that's what Jack Daniels is for and other things like that. I mean, that's really what the world's, that's the only world's answers. You see how we have something such deeper of such a precious nature, it's incredible. Consider, no, let. Now, here's what's even cooler, okay? Suppose you're going through a trial. And part of the hard part about considering, considering kind of infers using rationale, right? Using your rational thought. We all know when you go through something difficult, your emotions sort of step in <laughs> and get real big and make it hard to be rational, make it hard to do this. Our emotions can come in and just destroy our, ra our rationale. And that's what's so cool about verse 5. But if any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all men generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. You struggling? You struggling to do everything we just talked about? It's all good. Ask. Isn't that cool? James is saying, how can, how can we call James legalistic when he's saying to us, look, this is what a, Christian, a Christ, mature Christian does. They take a stand. They, do, they, they consider all that, but if you're struggling, just ask. Ask. I love that. If you're struggling, just ask for wisdom. You guys remember in Mark 9, 24, where the man brings to Jesus 
his son who's having epileptic seizures and whatnot. And it was so violent at times that the Bible actually says like sometimes he'd have this epileptic thing and it would throw him in, he'd throw himself into a fire or into horrible things. So they bring him to Jesus to see if Jesus would heal him. And the man says to Jesus, I believe, but help my unbelief. Do you guys remember that? I love that because it's so honest. It's so honest. I believe, Lord, but I kind of don't. <laughs> right? Like, it's the honest thing to say to Jesus. Like, I think I believe. I kind of don't. I don't know. Right? Don't you find yourself in that sometimes? Well, I, there's something in me that believes. There's definitely something in me that don't. There's definitely something in me that's struggling. That's the idea here. Well, I remember what Dan said about James saying, consider it all. But man, he didn't know that this would happen, right? This is too big. This is too painful. I think it leaves room for the times where when you're struggling and you're hurting, you just fall on your face and you ask. And there's times where that could be months. There's times when that could just be, Lord, I don't know what you're doing. I don't know what you're doing. Right? I mean, I've been there. I've been in places where the only thing I got right in my pain was falling on my face. It's the only thing I was doing right. So when the trial comes, we pause to consider. We consider what we know of our God. And in that closeness, in that closeness, we can rest and let the results work out. And when it's too much, we can ask for help. Isn't that cool? I love it. I love it. I just want to read this as we finish. Something to think about, okay? We learn from James that trials produces endurance and completeness and deeper maturity as we broaden our relationship with God. That's all the things we just talked about. But I also believe there are two other areas, probably more than two, but two other areas that can be enhanced by our trials. Two things that I've grown to cherish. And this is how we'll conclude today. The first is this. The trials can give us a deeper apologetic or a defense for what we believe, okay? This is really what apologetic means. In a world void of God, void of meaning and purpose, trials are seen as something to avoid at all costs. We already said that. If all we are is matter and nothing else, Suffering only serves to break that down. When trials or suffering comes, the secular person who has no meaning or has tried to place meaning in things that they cherish, things like family, success, or accomplishment, etc., will only see suffering or trials as a loss or as destruction of those things that they love. For the secular thinker, there are no answers and if they say they have some, they're almost always lifted or stolen from another ideology, typically a religious one that believes in a transcendent purpose, like we believe, and more importantly, a purpose giver, like we believe, Christianity. 
Christianity, I make kind of a, a heavy statement here, but I believe it with every bit of my being. Christianity quite simply has the best answers for suffering. We may not always know, and I got, I'm stealing this straight from Timothy Keller on a series he did uh, on apologetics. I love this. We may not always know why God allows suffering. We may not always know why God allows suffering, but we do know the reason it isn't. It isn't because he doesn't love us. James makes that pretty clear. I love that. The second thing that trials can produce in, is a unique chance to show our love to God. In Deuteronomy 8.2, God says, I led you through the wilderness that I might test you to know what was in your heart. I don't know, maybe you remember that. I led you through the wilderness that I might test you to know what was in your heart. Now, this can't mean God didn't know already what was in their hearts because he's all-knowing, right? So what could that mean? What could that mean? The Hebrew word for know there is the word yada. I think I'm saying that right. Which means the same thing as the Greek word gnosko, the one that we just we talked about. Gnosko is the word the Septuagint uses here for that word know. So in other words, the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament, uses the word gnosko, the Hebrew word's yada. So we're talking about that, that relational know. To the Jew reading this, okay, they would, have understand, they would have understood the depth and the meaning of this word no. There's a sense that this relational depth to this word would make a statement like, I know that person, and turn it into a statement like, I've experienced that person. And here is where it becomes so precious when considering what God meant in Deuteronomy. Check this out. He wasn't testing the Israelites to learn something. He was testing them to experience something. I tested you to know what was in your heart then becomes I tested you to experience what was in your heart. Is it possible that when we go through a trial, we get a chance to give God a gift the gift of a unique and new personal experience from our heart. From what I see in scripture, I believe we can. I believe the model that we see in James of considering and knowing, letting and asking does just that. It allows us to give God a gift, the gift of our heart, our adoration, our love, and our worship. Let's face it, trials, testing, suffering, they stink. <laughs> Nobody likes it. Nobody likes it. But Romans 8.18, my favorite verse in the Bible, helps us know it is only for a short time and is not worthy to be compared to the paradise that's coming. There are some times when you're going through something really harsh trial and really there's nothing this side of heaven that's going to make you feel better but knowing that this is a short time that there's something bigger to come that we're going to paradise it's just, that really touches me and keeps me moving through it even when like I said there are no feel goods 
Almost done. When trials come, we have two choices. The first is to see them as the world does, a meaningless, unfortunate hurdle in the pursuit of personal happiness and self-satisfaction, a bug splat on the windshield of self-interest, tragic, dark, negative, defeating, even destructive. Or the second way, the way a mature Christian sees. The trials are a chance to grow, to learn and deepen our faith and strength, that they are in fact meaningful. They have meaning. Something to consider and rest in, knowing their results are for our good. And ultimately, and ultimately, we always know they're just for a brief moment. Just for a brief moment, in light of eternity, right? In light of eternity. Sweeter still, for that brief moment that those trials are happening in your life, it gives you a chance to experience God's love and to offer him back the experience of ours. I love that. One the band can come, come up as we just kind of transition. I want to encourage you guys to read ahead. Take some notes and stuff in James. I think that'd be really good. Uh, be praying ahead. Just be praying for stuff that God may want to show you through James. Um, pray for our church as we go through the book of James. That there's going to be things that our church needs to hear um, in general. But also remember that God loves you long before you get any of this stuff right. He loves you. He loves you. He values you. He values you. We need to remember that. Okay?